Well, once again, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see each of you here this morning. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, this morning we're going to continue in our uh, little series of sermons that we've been doing on the seven churches of Revelation. We're going to be picking up once again uh, the church at Pergamos. We're going to see in this church here today those things which our Lord Jesus Christ condemns them for, or criticizes them for, or makes them aware of by way of the sinful practices that they were subtly giving over to. And this is something interesting to see because last week, you remember when we looked at the commendations that our Lord Jesus Christ gave, one of the things that we saw is that in many ways this was a commendable church. It was commendable because even in the face of great persecution and tribulation, it did two outstanding things. Two outstanding things were found uh, in this church. Number one, they had not denied the name of Christ, even in a time of persecution. And number two, again, number one, they held fast to his name. And number two, they did not deny his faith. And these things, again, were exemplary uh, by way of this uh, church's uh, uh, conduct and how this church uh, held itself in the society at that time. They were even holding the name of Christ and holding the doctrine of Christ even in the face of great persecution. It was a time in which the persecution was on the rise. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ makes mention of his faithful martyr Antipas. <clears throat> and one of the things that we saw was that even in, this, even in the face of this difficulty, here was this church remaining true to Jesus Christ, exemplary in so many ways. What's interesting, though, is when we continue to read in this letter that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to this church, is that we see that there were two doctrines that were beginning to subtly take hold in the congregation. Two doctrines that at first sight are almost uh, difficult to, to, to believe that a church of this caliber could fall prey to. And those two doctrines we'll see here today were the doctrines of the, the doctrine of Balaam, our Lord Jesus Christ mentions, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Well, the Nicolaitans. And we'll take a look at each of those uh, doctrines, each of those specific teachings, and uh, we'll deal with them. But what I want to do here this morning is I want to use this passage of Scripture to remind each and every one of us that our Lord Jesus Christ, again, not only knows His church, and the individual churches, again, that he is Lord of, he calls those churches in times of the potential of defection and apostasy, he calls those churches to repent. This is the thing that we see very clearly. And you might remember that one of the ways in which we approached this, uh, this letter last week was that we looked at our Lord Jesus Christ and the way he identified himself. He identified himself as the one who holds the sharp sword with two edges. <clears throat> this we saw was something that took us aback. Here was our Lord Jesus Christ not coming as the, as the comforting Christ, we might say. Here we saw our Lord Jesus Christ not as meek and gentle. Here we saw Jesus Christ coming to this church because of, its, because of the, the sin that it was potentially giving over to. And he was warning this church. He was coming to this church with a sword. As I said last week, are we used to this vision of Christ? Are we used to this picture of Christ? Christ with a sword coming to his church. Every church throughout history has had to, to deal with, to understand that this is how Christ presents himself. And even churches in our day, we must as well learn to see that Christ sometimes brings a sword to his church. But what I want to do again is I want to treat this passage of scripture under the following outline. I want to take a look at the historical sins that are brought to our attention here in the passage. 
And then I want to take a look at the contemporary manifestation of those sins. So the historical sins as we see the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and then also the uh, contemporary manifestations of those sins. And we do see these sins manifested in our day. I want to take our Bibles then and we'll go to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and we'll read from verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp two sword, the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas my faith was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So, thou, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and him will give, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, as I said before, last week we took a look at the introduction and the commendation that our Lord Jesus Christ makes to this church. And again, it's a wonderful thing to see how faithfully this church was able to stand in that day where persecution was, was, was really a situation that had to be dealt with. One of the ways you might remember that we dealt with that phrase, Satan's seat and Satan's throne, where Satan dwells, we dealt with it, we dealt with that primarily from the perspective that Pergamos was really a place where emperor worship had really settled in. And because emperor worship had settled into the to the degree in which it had, anything that went against the worship of the emperor necessarily came under the judgment of the emperor. You might remember that one of the things that we said was that. Pergamus had, by way of its authority given to it by Rome, the ability to enact capital punishment. And what we saw last week was that there was a time in the history of the church at Pergamus when, again, great persecution came, and there was that one, that faithful martyr Antipas, who would not, again, acquiesce to confess anyone uh, as being Lord other than Jesus Christ himself. And so, again, much is commendable in this church. So much so... That as I said before, it's almost shocking to see that this church could fall prey to the potential error that is brought about by these two groups that are mentioned. <clears throat> and we'll take a look at them as we go along. But I want you to see something before I get to this, to this uh, critique that our Lord Jesus Christ gives. I just want to remind you very quickly how commendable Pergamus was. In this passage of scripture, again, our Lord Jesus Christ says that thou holdest fast my name. This is, again, very encouraging. The word to hold fast means to grip tightly. It means to seize, to take hold on. And even when there was pressure on the church to leave off Christ, this church was holding on to Christ. This church, again, was holding on not only to the name of Christ, it was holding on to the faith of Christ as well. That truth, that body of doctrine that Christ has given to his church in his word, this church was holding on to it and not defecting from it. Much commendable, as I said before. 
But our Lord goes on again to mention the critiques. And the critiques that we see here, again, really uh, kind of come to us by way of the doctrinal teaching that this church embraced. Now, this is, this is interesting to us because what we're going to see is that these two doctrinal deviations, these two doctrinal errors really have to do with, the pra- with practice and conduct. But before their practice and conduct, they come into the church by way of doctrine, by way of teaching. There seems to be a sense in which there is a preparation for the practice by way of the teaching that goes before. And we'll take a look at that. But the first thing I want you to notice this. Notice here again when we take a look uh, in the passage, uh, verses 14 and following. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, that taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit, communi- uh, and to commit fornication. Did you notice what our Lord says there? He says, I have a few things against thee. Now, a number of things have to be noted here. When our Lord says, I have a few things against thee, he doesn't mean that I have a few things. They're not, any, they're not anything big or serious. It's just a couple of small things. He doesn't mean that. He means that he has a few specific things, specifically, that are offensive to him. And I want you to know and understand that Christ takes personally sin within his church. Christ is not treated as something indifferent. Christ is not treated as something that that can be tolerated. But rather, Christ takes a personal stand against the sin that is found in his church. I have a few things against thee. You mean you have a few things against this church that acted so, so heroically in the face of great persecution? Yes, I have a few things against thee, our Lord Jesus Christ says. And so what we're seeing here again is our Lord taking issue, critiquing uh, this church. And so the first thing I want you to see is the fact that he takes this matter seriously. The second thing I want you to see here is this. He is making a case that there are individuals in the church who are not flirting with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or flirting with the doctrine of Balaam. He is talking about those who are holding these things. And that's very significant. And the significance is this. In the same way that there were in that church those who held the name of Christ and those who held to his faith, there were those almost inexplicably that in the same church were holding these these, uh, damnable doctrines. How could that be? Well, much has to be said here. It, It reminds us how that a church in very many ways can have so many things right, but there can be an undercurrent of sin seeping in. Oh, this church had to be aware of it. It reminds us of the fact that how every church needs the word of God to expose the sins, not only that are in a church, but maybe the sins that are lurking within our own soul. We need the light of the word of God. And you see, I would suggest to you that this church would not even be aware of this lurking sin had not Jesus Christ made them aware of it. I have these things against you, these specific things, our Lord Jesus Christ says. And I said, as I said before, these individuals were not flirting with this sin. They were holding this sin. What's significant about that? The significance is this. You may have in, there may be individuals in a church that maybe by way of their outward conduct would not be doing anything uh, overtly that would catch our attention, but they may be holding on to doctrines that are destructive to their soul. Our Lord Jesus Christ sees this. There are churches, again, and not churches out there, but even, we have to say in our own church, 
where we must be very, very alert to doctrinal positions that we as individuals hold. There are certain doctrines, there are certain philosophies, there are certain ideologies, there are certain worldviews that are destructive to your Christian faith and are ultimately destruction, uh, destructive to the well-being of a church. And Christ is making these things known. It's not merely that these things are being flirted with. It's the fact that these things are being held to. And again, when you look at that word, holding fast, the idea is something of, of grasping it. For whatever reason, these individuals thought that they could find a place in this church at Pergamos where these things would be acceptable. Now, there are a number of things that we have to say here. Number one, you might remember that by way of the Nicolaitans, that that sin was first mentioned in the church at Ephesus. But Ephesus would have nothing to do with them. You remember that? Our Lord Jesus Christ says, look at verse 6 there. He says, uh, but this thou also hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and the, the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Uh, verse 6. Again, but thou hast the, again, the, the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so our Lord, and you remember when we preached from that passage of Scripture, we said that Jesus Christ was commending the church for what the world would condemn them for. The world would condemn a church for not allowing that type of teaching to stay in their church. Our Lord commends them. And so maybe what the Nicolaitans did, maybe they said, well, you know what, if we're not welcome in this church, we'll just go to the church down the road. Now, in this case, down the road is about 100 miles. It wasn't next door. But you get the sense where if, if, if error uh, or, or, uh, or, 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 again, a, a heretical doctrine is not accepted in one place, it seeks another place. And I think it's very, very likely that these individuals that held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, they just went to the church, that would, the next church that would take them in. And, and surprisingly, Pergamus was able to take them in. Maybe the, maybe the church of Pergamos was thinking, look, you know, maybe there are some things we're not exactly sure what they believe, but uh, you look, we're in a tough situation by way, of the, by way of the oppression that we're getting, by way of the larger society and culture. And look, these people, again, they're, they're, they're confessing Christ. They name the name of Christ. Oh, but what, how do they name the name of Christ? They do it in such a flawed way. And so maybe this is why Pergamos said that, well, well, we can have these individuals here in the church. Again, speculation on my part, but how is it that this group found acceptance in one church that was rejected in another? Again, maybe there was, a, maybe there was a something of, a, of an impressiveness with the individuals that were holding that, uh, that view. Maybe they were the more culturally refined within the, within the society, and maybe because of that, there was an easy acceptance of what they were, of what they were teaching. Well, irregardless of how they got there, the point that our Lord Jesus Christ was making is this. These individuals are a danger to the church and to your soul. These individuals must repent. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ will call them to. And so what I want you to see, as I said before, that, these, that, that our Lord Jesus Christ takes these sins personally. He takes all sin personally. And every time I sin, every time you sin, again, there's a very real, there's a truth that we are offending a holy God. We are sinning against the very God, the very Lord who bought us with his own blood. And so our Lord Jesus Christ I says, I have these things against thee. And the thing that he has against them, as I said before, was primarily in this context, the doctrinal position of a group within a church. As I said before, there are doctrines, there are philosophies, there are worldviews that are damnable. There are doctrines, there are philosophies, there are, there are worldviews that will do harm to your soul. And Jesus Christ is making this known. 
And one of the things that we have to ask ourselves in our days, are there, are there doctrines, are there teachings, again, that, that we may be imbibing in some way that may be, damnable to our, that may be damaging to our, uh, to our church and to our soul? We must be aware of these things. And so, again, we're going we're gonna to kind of develop some of, this, some of this as we go on. And so here's the Lord Jesus Christ taking issue. Well, what, was the, what were these two doctrines that our Lord makes mention of? The doctrine, again, of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Well, some of these, uh, uh, these, these doctrines are fairly well known. Maybe many of you have heard uh, sermons on these passages where these things are explained. Oftentimes, uh, these uh, sins, these doctrines are referred to as compromising doctrines. A lot of truth to that. But I want to I deal with that. I want to deal with this to, with, a little more, with a little more detail. Sometimes the doctrine of Balaam, as I said before, uh, seen by way of compromise. Other times the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Sometimes it's presented to us as a, as a view in which the, the, the official clergy of the church dominates the, uh, the people. We'll take a look at that. I don't think that that's really hitting the bullseye. That might be included in that. But I think something far more insidious is involved here. When we get to the doctrine of the Balaamites, or the doctrine of Balaam, of course, we're brought immediately to a recognition of that false prophet of the Old Testament, Balaam, whose uh, kind of uh, career we see in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 through 25, and then in Numbers 31. And what we see by this man is essentially this. Here was a man who primarily, by way of his, his grave sin, seduced Israel into sin. He cast this stumbling block. And, and what, what Balaam did primarily was this. You know, again, by way of the account in Numbers 22 through 25, he could not bring a curse upon Israel. But what he did by way of his subtlety is he brought about actions in the nation of Israel that led to the chastening hand, the judgment of God upon Israel. And again, what, what he did is he, he commended this, uh, this uh, seductive uh, kind of approach to, to draw Israel into sexual sin and to, and to idolatry. And this brought the judgment of God upon them. And so what we see happening in the doctrine of Balaam is that Balaam is teaching a way to bring, again, judgment upon a church by way of this giving itself over to sexual sin and idolatry. Now, here's the thing. This may sound somewhat foreign to us. And we might think that it might have been foreign to the first century church, but it was not. The religious culture of that day was rife with idolatry. So much so, as I said before, Pergamos was kind of a set. Each and every one of these cities, at least the first three that we looked at, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, they all have this, this kind of center of idol, of, of, of idol worship. And along with the idolatry of that day, there was much by way of overt sexual immorality that was connected with it. It was a very degrading form of religion that was there in the first century. And one of the great calls of all New Testament teaching was to get out of that kind of, that kind of practice, not to be a part of it, to make sure that whatever the individual had by way of Christian liberty, it didn't lead to this licentiousness that would go along with the pagan culture at that time. And so when... And when our Lord Jesus Christ is making reference here that you hold the doctrine of Balaam, he's talking about those who were allowing in the church a form of compromise with the larger culture so that they could still, because of their Christian liberty, 
participate in the pagan practices and still be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. This is damnable. You see, this was destructive. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ, again, makes such, a, makes such an emphasis on the need to repent. He says there in verse, uh, in verse uh, 16, I believe it is, uh, again, that they must repent or I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, again, taking this strong stand. Just take your Bible and, and go over a few pages to, to Revelation chapter 9 and look at uh, verses 20 and 21. Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21, where we see again these judgments falling upon the earth. Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, listen, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. There's a sense in which those very things that marked first century pagan worship were the very things <clears throat> that individuals are refusing to repent of. And in our day and in a day in the future, in the future, if a society or a church refuses to repent of these things, the judgment of Jesus Christ will come upon them. This is exactly what is being said here. And this is why our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to this church, beware have nothing to do with this damnable doctrine. So there we have again the, 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 this doctrine of Balaam. Now Balaam is interesting for us for a number of reasons. We see him mentioned three times in, in the book, uh, in, in the New Testament. Number one, we see him mentioned in, in, first, uh, in first Peter. Uh, or, uh, excuse me, I believe it's uh, Second Peter. Forgive me for that. Uh, we see him in Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 15. And we read the, uh, the following uh, concerning false teachers. That they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, 2 Peter 2.15. This tells us something about Balaam and something about Balaam's doctrine and those who teach Balaam's doctrine. And it's interesting because in this passage of scripture, we have the motivation of Balaam and the motivation of false teachers. These individuals were really in this, the church in order to profit, in order to gain. These men who allowed these sinful uh, practices into the church, in one sense, were doing it just so that they can gain from it. The second time that we see uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the doctrine or Balaam mentioned in the New Testament is in the book of Jude, uh, Jude, uh, uh, Jude verse 11, where we see this, Woe to them, for they have taken the way of Cain, and they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. If Second Peter speaks of their motivation, Jude speaks of their destruction. And then thirdly, we see here in, the, in Revelation chapter 2, their influence. So by way of their motivation, it's greed. By way of their end, it's destruction. By way of their influence, it's corruption. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, is specifically warning the church against this type of influence. And so that is the doctrine of Balaam. Now, as I said before, there are, there are other things that we should not be ignorant of here. There is, again, the, the concept of, of, uh, of compromise is, is, is part and parcel of this whole thing. And again, stop and think of how seductive this would be to this first century church that had experienced the martyrdom of this man, uh, Antipas. 
It would be very, very seductive to say within the church, listen, do we really have to take this hard of a stand on this situation? Isn't there a way in which we can avoid all this, <clears throat> all this uh, uh, opposition and all this persecution uh, from, uh, from the government? And can't we just kind of go along with these things? What harm would it be to just recognize Caesar if in recognizing Caesar we're left alone to worship Jesus Christ? And again, it reminds us that Jesus Christ is above all earthly powers. And what the church, again, from its earliest days stood for was the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. And nothing would shake them from that. But you can see the temptation to compromise on that point. Do we have to lose our lives for this? Do we have to be impoverished for this? Do we have to be ostracized and outcast from society for this? And this is what's so significant about what our Lord Jesus Christ says by way of what he promises to the overcomer. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Oh, the promise that Christ makes. To him that overcomes, I will give him a white stone with a, with a new name written on it. And you might remember last week, and we might take this up next week, but you might remember last week what we said about that, about that stone with the name written on it. It's, it, it kind of paralleled something of the, of the certificate or the past that was given in the ancient world. When you worship Caesar, remember what I said last week? You were literally given a certificate. And so again, our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, the world may give you a pass, but oh, the certificate that I give, this white stone. And so the church, again, you and I as individual believers, does that grip us? Does that motivate us? Does that become sufficient to cause us to say to a watching world, we will worship Jesus Christ and him alone? And so again, that's what our Lord is calling this church to. And so again, the seduction of, of, of Balaam here, uh, the seduction to, to give off these, uh, these hard and these harsh corners so that, that we don't bump up, bump up against the world all the time. But our Lord again, our Lord Jesus Christ will have nothing of it. He says, thou hast there, the, again, the, the doctrine of Balaam who, who cast a stumbling block uh, before the children of Israel to teach them to commit idolatry and to commit fornication. This, this stumbling block of, of, uh, of, of Balaam. And the idea, again, is this, is that by way of the, and it hurts to say it, but we have to say it by way of the allure of sexual sin. This is how Balaam was able to entice the children of Israel into that place where they ultimately forsook God, where they, where they I'm sorry, where they ultimately committed idolatry. This is one of the things that we have to be aware of. Can we, can we even conceive of an individual who is so giving, given over to his lust and passions that could ever be a courageous individual in society? There is a sense in which that, that, that moral courage that is needed is completely drawn away, is completely wasted away by way of the indulgence of our lust and desires. And so the church is called to this austere following of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, even this austere purity and holiness that Jesus Christ calls us to. Oh, Christ, again, he is taking this issue with this church and he is doing it again with the sword in his hand. <clears throat> he is reminding those, that church in Pergamos, who holds the ultimate authority. It's not the Roman emperor. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that was the doctrine of, the, uh, of, of Balaam. Well, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, what, what was it? What is this? You might remember that when we looked at it, it, at it um, when we considered the church at Ephesus, 
one of the things that we said is that one of, the, one of the most common things that we come across when we read the commentaries is that no one knows exactly what constituted the, the, the sin or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. As I said before, there are a couple of ways in which it's uh, commonly addressed. One of the ways it's, it's, it's addressed <coughs> is, is along these lines, that the Nicolaitans were those, as I said before, who exercised uh, this kind of burdensome authority over the congregation. It's made up of two words, Nike, to defeat or to conquer, and the word laos, uh, for the laity, for the people. And so the idea it was, or is, that the Nicolaitans were those who, by way of this, 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 this austere authority, this, this, this oppressive authority, was beating down the people. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, to be honest with you. Um, I think, that, again, it, that is such an accepted view uh, that's current that I, I don't want to completely go against it because... There may indeed be truth to it, but as I studied this out, I don't think that that's where the center, where the, where the center of gravity lies with this sin. Another, uh, maybe less well-known uh, view of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans were that the Nicolaitans were actually the followers of one of the early deacons that we find in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. And in that passage of scripture, you have seven men that were named as deacons. One of them was Nicholas. And there is a view uh, that says that Nicholas uh, severely apostatized, defected from the faith, gave himself over to all kind of licentiousness, and, there, and he gathered a following to himself. <clears throat> and that there are some who, who believe that the Nicolaitans were then were those who were following in the footsteps of this man who had, severe, who had severely defected from the Christian faith. Again, I don't think that that's the point either. I think that kind of misses the mark. Rather, what we should see with, the, with this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, as I understand it, is that the Nicolaitans are, are noted in a similar way to those to that doctrine of Balaam. And so whatever there was by way of that drawing to sexual sin and that drawing to idolatry was also part and parcel of the teaching of the Nicolaitans as well. And what becomes interesting is this is that when we go on later, I believe it's in verse 25 of chapter 2, we have a reference to uh, the teaching of Jezebel. Um, uh, let me see here, and, for, and forgive me for that. Uh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 20. In, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, notice again what our Lord says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, similar language, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, now listen, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Very similar. And so what many commentators are saying, and I, I agree with that, that these three groups, whether it's, whether it's represented by Balaam, the Nicolaitans, or Jezebel were those who were teaching a form of compromise that led to this immorality and idolatry. Stop and think of what would be happening here. It was a severe abuse of the concept of Christian liberty. That your liberty in Christ allowed for this type of thing. Stop and think when the Apostle Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians and he talks about meat offered to idols. And he remember he says, he says, look, he says meat that's offered to idols, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it, it's, it's really nothing. And, and if you want to uh, purchase meat that's on, the, uh, that's on the marketplace that had previously been offered to idols and you want to purchase that and use that, there's nothing wrong with that. That was, a, that was a huge difference between that 
in actually participating in the idol feast. And when there's a call, when, they, when there's a mention to entering into idolatry here, when there's a mention of eating these meats offered to idols, it's not that meat that was given, that was sold to the public after the time of, of, of pagan worship. It was that involvement in the pagan worship. And again, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul as well says, You're, the Christian is to have none of those things. And you can't think in order to compromise with the larger culture, I'll acquiesce to their religious norms or to their moral norms. Jesus Christ says, no. And the world says, oh yeah? Well, it'll be tough. We have, we, the, the world has ways of kind of bringing about compliance, doesn't it? And we're very blessed because we don't feel a whole lot of that pressure there, but you know that the world can do that. You know that the world can make you do things Make it costly if you don't do things. And the temptation would be, okay, look, let's, let's, let's kind of, let's sand off some of the rough edges here. Do we really have to be that committed to this? Is this really an element that's going to affect who we are as Christians? <clears throat> it's sadly, it, it's sad to see how many, well, way, how many ways that this uh, takes place in our day. So we, again, we had the, uh, uh, we had the historical uh, mention of those sins. I want to just quickly move to the, to the current uh, manifestation of these sins. And it leads me to say this, it's amazing how in our day, so many elements of compromise are, are, are confronting the church. We have the whole reality of the, 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 the society that we live in with the, with the rise and the overturn, with the rise of what we know the scripture teaches as sexual immorality, the whole turning on its head of what God would call right and what society calls right, the acceptance of, again, homosexuality, the acceptance of, the, of, the, of so-called transgenderism, the acceptance of things that God absolutely abominates as being acceptable in society. And it does, doesn't it kind of, in a way, shock us that there are churches who, by way of their teaching, incorporate this? Get back again, as I said earlier, thou hast them that hold the doctrine, not those who flirt with the ideas, not those who are saying, hey, look, I have, I have friends uh, that, that, you know, that, that, that are involved in that sin and I want to lead my friends to Christ. Understandably, fair enough. But when a church or an institution, again, adopts that as a doctrinal stand, our Lord Jesus Christ says, no, this, I have something against you. And we see it in our day, institutionalized in many ways. Is there, <clears throat> could, could we say probably at least one third of the churches that we see here in New England in our area are churches that proudly uh, present uh, on, on, their, on, their, uh, on their church's billboard something of a rainbow, something to let them know, the, something to let the larger culture know, we're with you in your sin. Now, they would never say it like that. They would say we're tolerant and we're loving. But when it's all said and done, it is acquiescing to the moral norms of the culture in order not to, be, in order not to offend the culture or to be on the, culture, on the receiving end of the culture's wrath. <clears throat> and so our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, this is wrong and this must be repented of. And so here's the presentation here. Think of other ways in which we see this. We see this again where you have churches, sometimes, well, you have religious institutions. Sometimes they're Christian institutions, sometimes they're not. Where the great thrust is bringing all religions together. So it doesn't matter about the exclusive claims of Christ. It doesn't matter about Christ saying that he is the only way. Say that Christ is the only way and you'll get the challenge back. Well, where does it say that? And why should Christ be the only way? And what about those who have never heard of Christ? So that's a legitimate question. We have to deal with that. But again, the scripture has the answer. And so again, when, the, when these churches are acquiescing 
setting aside the exclusive claims of Christ in order to get along with the larger religious culture, this is damnable. Stop and think of another thing I was just reading in the, uh, this past week, and, and a lot of this is because of the, of the current uh, reignited debate on abortion. And the article that I was reading, I think it was Thursday, Thursday or Friday, the article I was reading was of this, it hurts me to say it, of, and I'll say it this way, of this so-called, quote-unquote, faithful Christian woman who works in an abortion center and who prays with the people who come in for abortion. What, what teaching takes place to make a professing Christian think that he or she can be identified in the very industry of the taking of life? It, it's bewildering. But no more bewildering than what we see here on the pages of Revelation chapter 2. It was the same thing. Somehow, some way, in a church, the church that that woman might belong to, and again, I, 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 I kind of doubt it, but it may be a solid church. Well, I kind of doubt it. How, how does a pastor keep silent when, when he knows one of the members of his congregation is employed in that way? And so, again, however, there was something first, uh, again, structurally, by way of teaching, to allow a woman a peace of mind, and to even think she's doing God's work. This is what led me to the, uh, uh, to the article. The headline was something like this, how that pro-abortionists think that, think that God is on their side. This is our day. This is our religious environment. And to hear some, you know, some preacher up here uh, kind of talking like this, again, you can imagine how the world sees that. And oh, well, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we won't mention this sin. And maybe we won't mention that sin. And maybe, excuse me, maybe we won't, we won't mention the other sin over here. And before you know it, if you dare step out of line from the culture, the culture comes against you. And Christ says, listen, I'm sent, did you read what he says here? Notice here, and as we go on, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not, I hate to use the, the expression, he's not playing around here. He says to this church, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. Now this is interesting, because I think in a very real way Christ is speaking about him coming to the church, but I also think in a very real way he's speaking to the angel of that church. Repent, or I will come against thee quickly. You see, the angel of the church, you see the leadership of the church, you see the minister of the church, you have the responsibility. You can't help what's out in the culture, but you most certainly can help what is taught in the church. And if you allow this to stand, I will come against you, and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Oh, the word of Jesus Christ to his church today, you see, it's the same as it's always been. No matter how, and the culture isn't like changing in, in one sense as far as getting back. The culture is just going back to what it was before the gospel infiltrated the world. And so we see again these things in our Lord Jesus Christ saying to this church, and, say, and did, you know, did you see what else he says here in verse 16? Repent, or I will come against thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Those who are teaching this doctrine, I will fight against them. He says there in verse 20 concerning that woman Jezebel, I will, I will judge her on that bed of fornication. Christ himself will come and fight against those who have responsibility as to what is taught in a church. And so again, this is a very serious, a very severe letter. Our Lord says here again, he calls for repentance. And what a serious call this is. 
This is one of the most severe calls to repentance in all of the New Testament. Repent, or I will come against thee quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is that? What is Jesus Christ? How does he fight against us, fight, fight against a, a sinning people with, this, with the sword of his mouth? Well, let me say it like this. What is the sword of his mouth? It's the word of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ brings to bear on all those who refuse to repent everything by way of what he has spoken out against sin in his word. He brings the judgment of his word upon those who refuse to repent. Take your Bibles again. Go to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. Toward the end, you'll know the passage. I believe it's verses 18 and 19. Revelation uh, 22, verses 18 uh, and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecies of this book. If any man shall add unto the things, uh, unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. That's Jesus Christ fighting with the sword of his mouth. The very things contained in the word are the very things that come upon those who fail to heed the word. Verse 19, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away for his part from out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Jesus Christ, when he fights with the sword of his mouth, brings the judgment of his words upon those who refuse to repent. And so he says to that church at Pergamos, and he says to every church throughout human history, there are certain teachings and doctrines that I hate, he says, that I find abominable. And if those teachings are in a particular church, that church must repent of that teaching and of that sin. And if it refuses to repent of that teaching of that sin, Christ himself will come and fight against those who hold that with the word of his mouth. The judgments of God brought upon you from his word. Does that make you, and I'm not trying to do this. But does that make you tremble? Does that give you a sense of fear to think that the judgments that God has delineated in his word would come, would come smashing down on my head? And our Lord, as I said before, he doesn't come to this church saying, look, I get it, I understand. He'll say that to Smyrna. Smyrna's being persecuted. Smyrna's not leaving off anything. Smyrna is not allowing any kind, of a, any kind of sin to come in. He says to Smyrna, look, I, I understand. I realize. I know it. But to this church who in, a, in, in kind of, a, kind of a, a way that, well, let me say it this way. It's only hard to understand what's going on in this church if we willfully turn a blind eye to what's happening in churches today. Churches today are ready to compromise in order to keep from having anything to do with persecution, hardship, or tribulation. And those very things were present then, they're present now, they'll be present in the future. And Christ is calling for people to be faithful to himself. Christ is calling for people to walk according to the light of his word. Christ is calling a people who will take every thought captive to his lordship. And who will say, and who will say to all earthly powers, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I own him as my Savior. Amen. Can I say it? Do with me what you will. Now we're not looking for we're not looking for a hard time. You know, I hope and I pray that every one of you sell sell happily to heaven. I mean it. But brothers and sisters, do not steer clear of, 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 of difficult waters if the way of faithfulness brings you to difficult waters. 
Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we heed the words of our living Savior, and may we follow hard after him, we pray. Give us grace, Father, we pray, to stand courageously in this day that you've called us to live, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.